Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. I'm Arnie Avedisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind, add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sip slowly, sit back and enjoy the wonder of cosmic creation. And I think I'm going to do that right now. Mm, very nice. Very unusual today. <clears throat> Gosh, that was strong. A hearty hello to everyone out there. Thanks for joining me on another round of Cosmic Cocktails here on the Metaphysical Martini Show. The show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo. In today's unnecessarily busy generally small-minded and ever-so-complicated world. Our goal is to let the spirit inhabit the human. In other words, to let our cosmic selves guide our human selves. And for many reasons, that's not as easy as it sounds, is it? And I'm sure we'll talk about that and so many other things ad nauseum in the shows to come. But what I'd like to Oh, what? What's going on? Hang on a minute. I was going to talk about something, but what is that I hear? Somewhere in the distance. What are those? Are they cowbells? Are they sheep bells? No, they're sleigh bells. Oh, my God. Ho, 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 everybody. I see a reindeer pulling a fat little man in pajamas. Oh my gosh, it's Santa. Hey everyone, today is Christmas Day. Merry Christmas to you all. A very, very Merry Christmas. And if Christmas isn't your thing, well then I wish you blessings of the season and a very cool Yule. Bye-bye Santa. Don't forget to drop off my gift. There he goes. Oh my gosh. Hey, whatever you celebrate at this time of year, May supreme cosmic intelligence shower you with love and prosper you and your tribe in all directions and through all dimensions. And may it be a time of renewed purpose and a fresh start for us all. It doesn't matter if this time of year is for you something devotional or inspirational or just an excuse for a couple of days off and much needed rest. And it doesn't matter whether you identify as left or right or thoroughly confused. It doesn't matter if your spirit animal is a hedgehog or a dune worm. Let's peel off those exterior layers and labels and just relate to one another as souls on earth playing at humanity. Let's try to relax and enjoy the festivities. And let's put lots of brandy in our eggnog because that is always good. So Christmas, hey, you know, I'm not a Christian per se, not in the traditional way. I would say I honor Christ consciousness. Of course, I'm a shaman. Um, 
I'm pretty sure a version of Jesus did exist, a version, in my opinion, quite different from any biblical portrayal. But the changing of the seasons predates any known religion. So for me, it's the astrology and not the doxology that is the reason for the season. But that said, unless you're a Luciferian, I am more than happy to celebrate anything with anyone. I truly, honestly want to hear your tribal stories. I want to rejoice with you all as you sing songs of your chosen prophets. I want to hear your stories and I want to learn why they are important to you. An interesting thing happens when we do that, doesn't it? More often than not, we find we have more in common than originally thought. So whatever you celebrate, people, make it good, make it great and have a jolly good time. So to honor the occasion, I thought we'd start out the show with a few random but hopefully interesting facts about the Christmas season. Now, I must say, as you probably all know, I grew up in England, so my main frame for the holiday season really is Christmas and solstice. That doesn't mean I disrespect any other religion. I respect them all. I just don't know everything about all of them. So let me share with you a few of our more popular random facts. Number one, <laughs> hallucinogens and Santa. Now, you don't really think about Santa tripping out on LSD and stuff, do you? But hmm, honestly, peeps, how do you think he manages to deliver all those presents all over the world in just one night? So here's an interesting little tidbit from Shaman Lore of Old. It is said that the shamans of Savarnaya Azia, uh, which would be the northern Asiatic reason to people like you and me, they partake of a certain mushroom called an amanita, and they do this during the winter solstice celebrations. Uh, the Asiatic region, uh, for all of those who are geographically challenged, go Siberia and hang out there. So this mushroom, this amanita mushroom, is bright red, and it has white spots, which is a bit like Santa's outfit, isn't it? Now, why do they eat this mushroom? Is it a magic mushroom? Yes, it is a magic mushroom. It's a very magic mushroom. This mushroom puts you into a deep trance. And the shaman and the reindeer, because guess what? The reindeer eat it too, because in Siberia there are reindeer. They enter a state of spiritual ecstasy. And that's what we in the trade call a spirit flight. And I think this is where the visual of a red and white Santa with reindeer in the sky comes from. So in shaman law, once the mushroom has been ingested, the reindeer guide the shaman to the North Star. And all shamans know that the North Star is a jumping off point to higher cosmic realms. So now, isn't that interesting? All those children waiting impatiently for Santa and his reindeer to make a trip to their home to bring them gifts. And it's really about another type of trip altogether. Terence McKenna would be proud. So you say, that's interesting. What about the legend of this actual other Father Christmas chappy that was based on a fourth century character, Bishop Nicholas of Smyrna, modern day Izmir? He was uh, the patron saint of pirates and butchers and pawnbrokers and thievery and orphans and royalty. And funnily enough, depending on who you ask, apparently of New York. 
uh, you know, I guess maybe he existed and maybe he did give out presents as well. But I prefer the flying tripped out reindeer. And then, of course, there is the old Viking legend of Odin and his flying eight-legged horse, Sleipnir. So we have really no idea where this came from. But the actual Siberian shaman thing, that's a true story. That did and does happen. So interesting stuff. Next time you see the image of Santa and his reindeer, have a think about these shamans all in their garb, eating this mushroom and giving it to their reindeer and getting tripped out and going into higher realms. And, oh, it's just kind of fun. Okay, uh, random but hopefully interesting fact about the holiday season number two, the Christmas tree. Now, when we research this, we find that the symbolic use of evergreens, well, it goes back thousands of years, doesn't it? Things that stay green during the long winter months understandably had a special meaning for people. It still does. They would uh, bring evergreens indoors, the people of old. They would decorate their homes and their common halls with it. And no doubt all sorts of superstitions sprang up over the years. You know, this one would drive out evil spirits. This one would make you fall in love. This one would cure illness. You know, the usual thing. And if we go back further... Because we always think of, you know, Christmas, you know, cold weather, cold weather, Santa and all of that. But the ancient Egyptians, well, they worshipped Ra. And Ra had the head of a hawk. And he wore the sun as a blazing disc in his crown. And at the solstice, when Ra began to recover from his illness, the Egyptians filled their homes with green palm rushes which symbolized for them the triumph of life over death. The sun, S-U-N, returns to us again. And then, of course, the early Romans, they marked the solstice with a feast called Saturnalia. Uh, I think it was also called Bacchanalia, but it was in order of Saturn, in honor of Saturn, who was the god of agriculture. So the Romans knew that the solstice meant that soon farms and orchards would be green and fruitful again. And so to mark the occasion, they decorated their homes and their temples with evergreen boughs. And in northern Europe, the mysterious Druids, all the ancient Celtic priests also, they decorated their temples with evergreen boughs as a symbol of everlasting life. And the Vikings in Scandinavia, well, they thought that the evergreens were very special because they were the special plant of the sun god Boulder. Now, with regard to just Christmas, Christmas and uh, the tree, we are told that it was the Germans who popularized it. Now, devout Christians as early, I think, as the 16th century, they would bring trees into their home and they would decorate them. And at some point, someone decided to place lighted candles on the trees. Not a good idea, in my opinion, but oh well. And we're not really sure who came up with that idea, but it is credited to Martin Luther. Uh, the Protestant chappy and not the civil rights uh, leader from Alabama, uh, clearly. So as the story goes, Martin Luther was walking home one night after composing one of his uh, magnificent self-righteous sermons, and he was awestruck by the brilliance of the stars twinkling between the trees, and he went on to recreate that in his home. Hmm. In England, my home, The Christmas tree didn't really become a thing until Victoria married Prince Albert. Albert was a German, a German prince. 
And it was, I believe, 1846 when a sketch of Victoria and her family decorating a Christmas tree was published in the Illustrated London News. And boom, almost overnight, the Christmas tree was the thing to have in your home. And Victoria was a very popular monarch, uh, unlike her predecessor, William IV. Uh, so whatever was done at court was immediately loved and immediately in vogue and copied by anyone who could afford it. So on to America, my new home. When did the Christmas tree come to America? Well, it would have been with the German settlers, because it certainly wasn't with the original English settlers, the pilgrims, the Puritans. They were a dour lot by all accounts. I, I hope I never had a past life as a Puritan. Um, to the Puritans, Christmas was sacred, of course, but too sacred for celebration and for pagan mockeries, such as decorated trees and singing and special sweetmeats. Now, they thought Christmas carols were heathen mockeries and they thought that any type of joyful expression, well, that was an affront to the suffering of Jesus. They even fined people just for hanging decorations or for looking a little bit too happy, up to and including five shillings, which would have been an absolute fortune in those days. What we do know is that the Pennsylvania Germans, uh, the Pennsylvania Deutsch, had community trees in their communities uh, up as early as the 1740s. But mainstream non-German America still thought the tree smacked a little too much of paganism for their liking. So, in fact, the more I read, the more I realize that restraint at Christmas was the norm in America until the arrival of more German immigrants and thankfully more Irish immigrants, because that's when things loosened up a whole lot. Thank you, God. And by the 1890s, the Germans started importing tree decorations into America. And by the 20th century, most homes and town squares had trees. And of course, then we had electricity, and that meant that trees could twinkle 24-7, and that made them even more popular. So I wonder if Martin Luther would have approved of that, of these electric trees, or I wonder if he would have seen electricity as the devil's work. Who knows? We'll never know. We'll never be able to ask him. Apparently, the first artificial Christmas tree from Germany, was made of goose feathers dyed green. And you think, oh, my gosh, well, that started very early. They wanted to do the fake trees. It would have been so much easier for people, etc. But apparently not. It wasn't for convenience, but it was due to aggressive deforestation. Hmm. Ring a bell? Anyway, today we find trees all over the world. And uh, for as long as we have trees on this planet, they will be a part of our seasonal celebrations. When the day comes that we don't have trees on this planet, there will be no point in having celebrations because none of us will be around. So that's interesting. And uh, let's see. Random fact uh, number three. When was December 25th? Oh, yes, somebody sent this in actually as a question. When was December 25th fixed as Jesus' birthday? Well, I believe, or I was told in school, that Pope Julius I fixed that day in 340 CE or AD, uh, depending on whether you want common era or anno domini. Uh, those who believed in the nativity assumed that it happened during a census period and opinions differed as to the actual birth date. Some people said well, it was in March. He was born in March. And others said, no, 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 no. He was born in January. And then some said, no, 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 he was born in June, but nobody actually knows 
because as far as I know, there is no official record of the birth of the aforementioned Jesus character, and the narrative was formed many years after it was supposed to have happened. However, you know, these seasonal solstice, equinox, all these things, they're ingrained in people's minds. People, you know, they're never going to stop celebrating the change of the season. So I think it made it easier for the Christian establishment. Um, it made converting people easier to have a fixed date, and especially around the midwinter when so many other traditions were celebrated. In Britain, there was Bacchanalia and the Yule Feast. These were times of great revelry and drinking. So, you know, getting tiddly at Christmas, as we call it, uh, that's uh, inebriated for, for the uninitiated, is not something new. People were consuming mass quantities long before it was called Christmas. If I remember correctly, Bacchanalia or Saturnalia started around December 19, started about a week or so. And it is a lot easier to convert people if you tell them they can keep their feasting and their drinking traditions, isn't it? I will just mention, though, this was a time of free-for-all and carte blanche, and things did get out of order. And good luck to you as far as safety was concerned. Most of the criminal acts went unpunished during this time, and perhaps it was this shameless excess that rankled the Puritans as much as it did, although... You know, they took it too far, in my opinion. Now, not everyone celebrates Christmas on December 25th. The Armenian Orthodox Church, uh, we stick to the old Julian calendar. That's a Julian as in Julius Caesar, uh, circa 45 before Common Era. Uh, the newer calendar is the Gregorian calendar. That was circa 1582. And that's regarded as a Catholic construct, of course. Um, so most of the Orthodox Christians all over the world celebrate either on January the 6th, like the Armenians do, or January the 7th. So um, my race ancestry is Armenian, but we grew up in London, and we had two Christmases plus a New Year, which is fantastic. So most people will wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, but Orthodox Christians will wish you a Happy New Year and a Merry Christmas. And I should add that Christmas for us, uh, it was a quieter affair. The main celebrating for most Orthodox Christians is done on New Year. Um, and then there's quite a few Armenians who insist on fasting for a few days before Christmas. I would just like to point out to everyone, I'm not one of them. Uh, other Orthodox churches that celebrate on January the 7th, that would be Russia. We mustn't forget that in the days of the Soviet Union, Christmas wasn't actually celebrated very much, was it? New Year was made into the important time. Yeah. Then there was the Revolution of 1917, and by about 1929, Christmas as a religious holiday was banned. Christmas trees were banned until 1935. And they did sort of, you know, make an appearance here and there, and they were renamed New Year's trees. So if anybody in Russia during that time wanted to celebrate Christmas, they did it in secret with their families. And, uh, you know, now, gosh, can you imagine 1930s Soviet Russia? What a grim place. Uh, the proletariat definitely needed some cheering up there. Well, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, circa 1991, I think people were free to celebrate Christmas again. But still, it's a quieter holiday there. And it's a smaller holiday. The big New Year celebration. That's the one. Um, so. If there are, you know, any Catholic Christians will celebrate it on December 25th, but most Orthodox Christians will celebrate it on the 7th, unless you're Armenian, because we do like to be different, and we insist on celebrating it on January the 6th. 
Uh, Ethiopian Christian Church also celebrates on the 7th uh, because it is believed that one of the three wise men who visited the baby Jesus came from Ethiopia. They don't really have a Santa Claus tradition in Ethiopia. It's not part of their tradition. But, I mean, I think commercialism has got there, too, as well. Gift giving isn't a part of the Ethiopian Christmas. It's more worship and, and food and games. And the reason I mention this, for those of you who enjoy church services, I've been to thousands um, of devotional services. I'm a big comparative religion freak. Uh, if there is such a thing. If you haven't been to one of the near Eastern, one of the Oriental, um, you know, Eastern Christian services, you really should go for it. See if you can get an invite or find a local church near you because it has a whole different buzz. Of course, you know, it has a very ancient feel compared to anything Western. I mean, the storylines are the same, but there's a trance-like magical quality to the chanting of these near Eastern uh, churches. There's something Oh, I can't describe it, but it stirs something deep and ancient within the soul. Yeah. So if you have um, an Ethiopian church around near you, an Armenian church, Serbian, Belarusian, Egyptian, Coptic Orthodox, uh, Georgian, uh, you know, try and have a go. Go visit. Just enjoy the music. It just takes you somewhere else. Okay, uh, random but hopefully interesting fact. Number four, why do we kiss under the mistletoe? You know, if I go to someone's home, which I rarely do because I'm a bit of a recluse, to be honest, I always look out for the mistletoe and I give it a wide berth. Kissing strangers is not my idea of fun. But where did the tradition come from? Well, who knows? I mean, there's a grain of truth in most myths. Some say, well, the wood that made up Christ's cross was mistletoe, but why would you want to go and kiss under it? I mean, it was morbid, really, isn't it, if that was the case? A little sip of my mistletoe martini today. We do know from Old England that the Druids, they revered um, mistletoe for its magical properties. They cut it off oak trees. Uh, mistletoe, for anyone who doesn't know, it, it, it's a parasite. It grows on other trees. And the Druids, or so we're told, revered it so much that they used a golden sickle to cut the mistletoe and they caught it in their cloaks before it fell to the ground. Because if it fell to the ground, it would lose its magical property. And the fact that it grew and blossomed, even in the most brutal of winters, that was another reason the Druids and other priests revered mistletoe. Its magical powers were said to include the vital essence needed for so many things, but mainly as far as the Druids were concerned, fertility. If we look at the ancient Greeks, they used it in medicine. They used it in all medicine uh, for spleen issues, menstrual cramps, epilepsy, ulcers. It showed up in just about every Greek potion or lotion. Then, of course, let's go back to the Norse mythology, the Norsemen. You know, another famous chapter in mistletoe folk, folklore, folk, hello, too many martinis, folklore comes from Norse mythology. So the story goes that when the god Odin's son, Baldur, was prophesied to die, his mother Frigg, the goddess of love, went to all the animals and plants of the natural world and said to them, please swear to me that you will not harm him. And they said, OK, since you're a goddess and Odin's wife, what are we going to do? We'll say yes. But Frigg apparently neglected to consult with the unassuming mistletoe. And the scheming god Loki, 
made an arrow from the plant and saw that it was used to kill the otherwise invincible Baldur. But why do we kiss under it? That still doesn't make sense. Well, I found a different version of the myth. I did. The gods, apparently, were able to resurrect Baldur from the dead. And delighted, Frigg then declared mistletoe a symbol of love and vowed to plant a kiss on all those who passed beneath it. So, mistletoe is the favoured sprig of Frigg. Death, resurrection, love, redemption. Where have we heard this all before? So, the next time you are kissing somebody under the mistletoe, you can thank Frigg. Um, an unfortunate word. Um, yes, never mind. Moving on. Anyway, I think in time, after the Middle Ages, mistletoe's association with all those ancient rites of fertility, magic and medicine diminished. And it just became what it is today, another Christmas tradition. So the emphasis shifted from sacred to smooching. And let's move on to number five. Yes, this is my favorite. The Christmas pudding or the plum pudding. Plum, of course, being a generic term used back in the day for, for any dried fruit. So before I talk about this, may I say how much I love Christmas pudding? Now, I don't really have much of a sweet tooth. I prefer bread and savouries. But Christmas is the culinary highlight of my year because of the Christmas pudding. In form, in function, in fruitiness, in all aspects, it is the most perfect of puddings. So what do we know about it? Well, I read a lot about this over the years and tried out many different recipes from ancient time, most of which were just absolutely disgusting. So here's the evolution of the Christmas pudding, and I think we're much better off today than we were in the old days. We think, we amateur food anthropologists, think it originated in the 14th century, where it was called frumenty. And I don't think we would recognize it, because it had more of a soup-like consistency. And it was made from beef and mutton, ugh, mixed in with raisins and currants and prunes and a mixture of spices and wines. So I'm not sure that sounds very appetizing, but in those days, interesting, it was considered to be a fasting meal in preparation for the festivities ahead. And it wasn't sweet. It was a lot more savory. And there are also some records of something being called a plum pottage, uh, pottage being soup, uh, again, uh, you know, which had some grain mixed in with it, and it was served before the main meal. I think they're both variations of the same. Back in the day, meats and sweets and spices are all mixed in together in ways that we wouldn't find palatable today. Anyway, moving on with the evolution of my favorite food, the Christmas pudding, by the end of the 1500s, it had morphed into something thicker, a sort of a, a thick concoction with eggs and breadcrumbs and more dried fruit. And in addition to wine, they added beer and spirits, which is a wonderful idea because it added so much flavor. And the invention, interesting this, I found, you know, it was a soup, remember, and then somebody invented the pudding cloth. And that allowed the pudding to be molded. And what that meant was you didn't need to use a lot of animal fats, such as suet, to keep the pudding looking like something. So it became less savory because it had less meat 
and less fat, and it became sweeter. And then by 1650, we see that it was accepted as the traditional Christmas pudding. But then what happened? Circa 1664? You guessed it. Those dry-boned killjoys, the Puritans, they had it banned. But salvation was at hand. King George I, God bless you, sir, he tasted the pudding and he declared it yummy in his royal tummy. And in 1714, it was reestablished as part of the Christmas meal. And the pudding continued to become denser, more solid as the years went by, until we would recognize it as the magnificent molded mound of delight we know and love today. You know, all you people out there who don't like Christmas pudding and its sister fruitcake, well, you have the right, of course. But I ask you to indulge me, and have you tasted a really good version of one or both? Go ahead, taste a really good version of one or both, and let me know if you've changed your minds. Now, clearly, we don't want uh, some sort of mass-produced commercial concoction. It has to be homemade, preferably, or a small batch artisanal creation. That would be lovely. You know, fruitcake. That's the original survival food. Back in the day, before we came out with trail mix and protein bars and other sawdust tasting things that give you gas, we had densely packed concoctions like fruitcakes. You know, if you gave your Scottish husband a goodly chunk of homemade fruitcake while he was out fighting the English, he could survive for weeks on that and it wouldn't spoil because it was soaked in booze. The fruitcake was soaked in booze, not the Scottish husband. Although it's quite possible the Scottish husband was also soaked in booze. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm not going there. I don't know. Although my first boyfriend, he was Scottish and he did drink a lot. Mm. But he was also my last boyfriend. So, you know, can't comment too much on that. Now, back to puddings. I happen to think that the British puddings and fruitcakes are still the best tasting. And I've not yet found commercially produced anything American worth sixpence but believe it or not even though i have not found a good american pudding in the little town of corsicana texas there is a bakery named the collin street bakery and they make a very good fruitcake indeed and if a london girl recommends a texas fruitcake there's probably something to it so you might want to try that out Okay, what else do we know about Christmas pudding? Well, as with all things, as with all things, there are superstitions attached to it. Uh, some would say, back in the day, they said you had to make it with 13 ingredients, and that would be Jesus and his disciples, and that every member of the family should take turns stirring it, and that it should be stirred east to west in honor of the wise men. And even though the pudding is a Christmas tradition, Many people still put a sprig of holly on top in the center of the pudding to represent the crown of thorns associated, of course, with the crucifixion. And it is said, many things are said, but it is said that one should pour spirits over the pudding and set it aflame to honor Jesus's love and power. Not really sure, to be honest, what a brandy fireball has to do with Jesus's love and power. But the added brandy, in my opinion, does help with digestion and it provides a pleasing spectacle. You know, pretty sure uh, brandy dousing, um, that's a, some sort of a druid holdover if you go back and look at ancient pre-Christian traditions. 
Of course, putting a silver coin in the pudding, that's said to bring good luck to the person who finds it, providing, of course, they find it before they break a tooth on it. Um, the other one, I think it's, um, there's a tradition that seems to date back to something called a twelfth night cake. Um, it's just, just, there's just so many things. There's just so many things. Uh, I, I'm never going to be able to get through them all today, but, uh, you know, I think the Americans know about the bachelor's button. You would put a button in the pudding, and if a single man found it, he would be single for the following year. And also the spinster's thimble. If a single woman found it, she would stay single for the following year. And a ring. If a single person found a ring that was put in the pudding, it would meant you would be getting married in the following year. It could also mean, however, that you would be very, very rich the following year. I don't recommend putting anything in your pudding because you don't have the national health here in America and dental worth is very, you know, dental work is very expensive. But do go out there and try some recipes and make a really nice pudding for yourself and see if you won't change your minds about how glorious puddings really are. Okay, interesting, random, hopefully interesting fact number six about the Christmas season. Each year, there are approximately 20,000 renter centers across the United States. And these people, they just, you know, you have to have some qualifications. You can't just be fat and have a beard. You have to undergo seasonal training on how to maintain a jolly attitude under pressure from the public. And as somebody who has worked in retail as a younger woman, I can tell you that is not easy. So they teach these centers and they give them practical advice. Um, don't accept money from parents while children are looking um, and don't avoid, you know, avoid garlic, avoid onions, avoid uh, beans for lunch and avoid, I suppose, in this day and age, we should say inappropriately touching the children. So rent to centers, big business every year. Uh, random, interesting fact number seven, Alabama was the first state to recognize Christmas in the United States in 1836, which was decades before the others. And fact number eight, Oklahoma was the last, and that was in 1907. Hmm, interesting. Random fact number nine. There is, or there was, or maybe there still is, such a thing as the Yule log. And it was indeed a giant log, that burnt for a very long time, hopefully through the 12 days of Christmas. And I'm pretty sure that went back to uh, pre-Christian times when the Vikings would bring in a huge log and hope that it lasted most of the solstice. So these days, when we think of a Yule log, we think of a lovely chocolate cake, don't we, in the shape of a log. Uh, and for sure, that won't last 12 days in any home. And number 10, according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission... Over 14,700 people in the United States end up in the ER each November and December from holiday decorating accidents. Well, people, I think you need to be a bit more careful. <laughs> well, there we have it. Wasn't that interesting? I know I was mesmerized, but then I am in the middle of a very large martini. One will, uh, hopefully that'll last me through the 12 days of Christmas, but I really don't think so. It's disappearing quite fast. So, all right. Hope you enjoyed that. Bong! 
And now, folks, it's time for a little pat of poetry. Because, folks, after a hard day shamaning, I like nothing better than coming home to a nice cup of tea or a small drinky poo, putting my feet up and writing non-peer-reviewed, really bad poetry. Why have Lord Tennyson and literary prowess when you can have cosmic Arnie and a whole lot less? So I only have one poem for you today, and it is, yes, you guessed it, My Ode to a Christmas Pudding. Thank you very much. Hmm. A Christmas pudding is a noble beast, revered and welcomed at every feast. When doused with brandy and set aflame, the wildest heart is soothed and tamed. Your virtues, O pudding, would fill a leather-bound tome. Therefore, I welcome you, good pudding, into my home. All right, what shall we do next? Oh, I'll tell you what. This might be a good time to remind you that in addition to the Metaphysical Martini channel, I have my own YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and put Oni Avedisian in the search bar and you'll be able to see some 95 plus videos, various things, short instructionals on metaphysics, spirituality, really bad, but occasionally brilliant poetry. And we're coming up with a new meditation channel. We also have Zook, the little pink alien who pontificates on this, that and the other. So please go check it out. If you like it, like, subscribe, share, blah, blah, blah. Thank you. All right. Now, it's Christmas, so we're doing things a little bit different today. When we get onto the January's shows, we will go back to our regular format with the Tarot Agogo and with Plato Chips and our Philosophy Corner and the questions and answers. So indulge me a little bit today. What should we do next? Let's do points to ponder. Let's do that. Because if your mind is lost out yonder... Put out a call to the divine first responder. So, New Year's Day is coming up. We are going into the year 2020 with, may I say, 20 over 200 collective vision. And that's not good, by the way. So what about New Year's resolutions? Have you made any? I know I have. And is your list a long one? Mine isn't. Mine's a one-line list. Now, does that mean I only have one problem that needs resolution? Oh, I think not. But just as there is only one source creator, I am, from whom all blessings flow, there is only one source from which all my problems flow. And I have decided to deal with that and only that in the weeks to come. So, <clears throat> my point to ponder this week is Focus. With regard to new resolutions and when we're trying to make behavioral changes, let's not be wimps. Let's not swim in the shallows. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's focus on what's in our face every day, every night, all the time. That irritating piece of grit embedded in our pain body, that overactive emotional trigger orbiting our light body like some death star satellite of woe. Round and round it goes, just waiting for a matching signature and kaboom, 
boom, we're thrown off track and we're out of the game. Nothing will change until we knock that satellite out of orbit. We're always going to be easy prey for the gods of self-sabotage. The gods of self-sabotage, people, they're out there. They're an insidious field of negative energies, and they can smell insecurity 10 galaxies away. And they live to hunt. That's the only intelligence they have. They feed on our insecurities. Our unresolved emotions are minefields. And every time we internalize, boom! This sound pleases the gods of self-sabotage, and they rush to feed on the scattered remains of our dysfunction. Well, that was a bit dramatic, wasn't it? But what I'm trying to say is we've all been there. We've all been there. And let's not go there again. Let's do something different this time. Let's start a journey, an exploration into the root cause of our issues and deal with everything there at the core. So if you're trying to change a behavior, for example, not sticking to a diet, There's no point in starting another diet until you address why you won't stick to it. Now, notice I said won't stick to it and not can't stick to it because the choice, the choice is always ours to make. And there's no point in making long lists of foods which are beneficial and long lists of foods which are not beneficial because as useful as lists are, It won't matter if our hearts and our minds are not working together for our betterment, for our evolution. So here's an exercise, you know, I use a lot in my shaman mentorship. Take a few days to formulate your thoughts on this, okay? The whole New Year's resolution thing. Oh, we're gung-ho. We've got to start on the 1st of January. It's got to be done. We've got to be 100% pure and clean on it. You don't have to start on January the 1st. You can start the following Monday or start whenever you want. Start in January. It's always good to start in the first month of the year. But you don't have to start on the first and don't make unreal expectations. So the theme we're dealing with here is what's in my face every day? Perhaps a more eloquent way of expressing that might be what do I fear most or What am I ignoring that bothers me every day? Or what is the root cause of my self-sabotage? Look, you're all articulate, educated people. Use your own words. And here's the exercise. And we've done variations of this before. Start by putting aside 30 minutes each day for seven days in a row. And it's important that these are seven consecutive days. And you get yourself a notebook and a pencil. And you close your door to your private space and you don't let anyone disturb you. Drink a glass of water. Not a martini and write the header. Now, the header, of course, is the theme. We're dealing with what's in my face every day. Perhaps you don't want to phrase it that way. Perhaps you would use one of the more eloquent phrases. Why am I afraid to give up smoking? What is the root cause of my dysfunction? You'll figure it out. It's your life. It's your issue. You know it better than anybody else. So you pick that first sentence, the header, write it down at the top of the page. Sip your water. 
And then you just let the stream of consciousness flow. Don't overthink it. Don't edit it. Don't question it. Just write or draw anything that flows from you. Words, symbols, pretty pictures. No matter how crazy it may sound or look and no matter how painful it may feel. Let all the frustration percolating inside you come out and find a voice there in that paper. Don't throw anything away, by the way. Just write. If you get stuck, check your breath. Did something come up that you were reluctant to let go of? Take a sip of water, reread the header, and carry on. Don't edit. Don't cross out. Don't second guess. Just let the stream of consciousness flow. When the timer goes off, and I do recommend that you use a timer, but don't use a timer that, you know, is very noisy. Use like a little gong, bong, something like that. When the timer goes off, put the notebook away until the following day. And when you've completed the seven days, then you can go back and read through your entries. Initially, most of what we write, it's going to be what I call mind dump, getting all the chatter out of the way. But as we continue with the exercise, we will uncover our deepest fears and the root cause of our inability to grow, to move on, to overcome the resistance that naturally accompanies spiritual growth. This is the first step, a very important first step. Once you identify current core issues, you can repeat the exercise as many times as you wish using different headers. Because we humans, we are wonderful beings, aren't we? But we are also multi-layered, complex little beings in need of a good unraveling. Don't dismiss the simplicity of this exercise. Many do. I'm very fond of saying that life has very few aha moments. You know, aha moments, they're wonderful, aren't they? But they're very few and they're far between. So this type of exercise, the seven-day writing exercises, they facilitate multiple mm -hmm moments between the aha moments. And that's how we continue to evolve. The magic and the mundane are two sides of the same coin. We need them both. So my suggestion, my darlings, no more than three items on your New Year resolution list. And that's it for points to ponder. Okay, now, if we're going to tackle all these problems that we have, bring them out into the open and resolve them, I think, given that it's Christmas Day and given that we're coming up to a fresh start on New Year, we should have a short meditation. Something to remind us of our true nature, of our true worth. Something to remind us that we are all manifestations of a glorious cosmic creator and that each interaction is an encounter with another part of our cosmic family. So I invite you to take a nice, deep, long breath and relax. Sip some water. I'm going to sip some uh, water. Ha <laughs> ha. All right. Wiggle your toes if you want. Stretch your shoulders. 
and focus on the breath. Everything is in the breath. The breath is divine Wi-Fi. The breath clears the aura. It cools the mind. It aligns us with all that is. Together, let us dissolve the illusion of separation. I am infinite consciousness, as perfect as the moment of my creation. I am the pure, unblemished potential that is cosmic creation. I am the eternal energy of unconditional love. I experience all things through the eyes of source, unconditional love, absolute equality. I am all that is, was, and ever shall be. I am source in potential. I am source in action. I am the realm of archangels. I am the realm of angels. I am the gods and goddesses of all the universes and all the souls that were ever made. I am the celestial bodies, the suns, the moons, the planets, the stars, and all the places in between. I respect my name, but it does not represent my totality. I am an eternal being, temporarily manifest as a human. I respect my occupation, but it does not represent my totality. All wisdom is available to me. All experiences are open to me. I respectfully engage with both the magic and the mundane. And I acknowledge that all earthly affairs are temporary experiences. I honor good health. I honor good wealth. But I am no less worthy when I find I have less. For all earthly affairs are temporary experiences. This is one life of many I have had and will have. I chose this life at this time to illuminate my soul, to bring light into the world. When I chose this life, I thought of it as a glorious space adventure. If I have forgotten this, let me remind myself of it now. Let me remind myself that I am a creation of a magnificent creator, one who adores its creations. Let me remind myself that I came here of my own choosing, in service to creation, for the expansion of all souls, for the expansion of universal knowledge, and for the glory of cosmic intelligence. From my vantage point, my human incarnation has great value and meaning. From this, my cosmic vantage point, my spirit inhabits the human. From my cosmic vantage point, 
I do not see my interests as separate from another's, nor am I distracted by devices created to feed the ego. I am not offended by the actions of others, for they too are manifestations of source energy. I choose to review their behavior and my own through the eyes of creation, not indoctrination. I am a sovereign being. I know my mind. I am a sovereign being. I know my mind. I am aware. I know my heart. I am aware. I know my heart. I am as perfect as the moment of my creation. I am source energy. Breathe ourselves back into our bodies very slowly, always using the breath. All divine knowledge flows through the breath. The divine in, the divine out. And when you feel back, just wiggle your toes, your wrists. And when you're ready, open your physical eyes and take a look around you. <sighs> Meditation is essential because we need to have clear auras. If our light bodies aren't clear, we can't trust the information. As I mentioned before, the divine or supreme cosmic intelligence, all of that information, that's Wi-Fi. And that's the breath. That's the Wi-Fi for us, the breath. That's why shamans and priests and all people, they, we just go on and on and on about the breath, the meditation, the breath, the meditation, until people are really bored with hearing it. But the reason we talk about it is that it is the jumping off point for everything. When I started training, I wasn't allowed to do anything except breathe and stare at a tiny hole in the wall for seven years. So let me tell you, it works. <laughs> well, my darlings, I think we've done it. We've used up a whole hour of linear time, an hour we will never get back. I do hope you enjoyed listening to the show as much as I enjoyed recording it because I did enjoy it. Today's real-life martini was truly a mistletoe martini, carefully crafted by yours truly using Tito's Vodka from Austin, Texas. You just get the vodka, you add some cranberry juice, elderflower liqueur, a little splash of simple syrup, and you decorate it with all sorts of greenery, which is very pretty, but it makes it difficult to drink. But it's delicious. And folks, a reminder that cocktails are great and best when they are an occasional treat. If you use high quality ingredients and make 
mixology, something very serious. One drink is all you need. I'm Arne Avedisian. This was a Christmas edition of Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.